I live the kind of life that other people would just love to live if they only had the courage. Who's to say that the boy would be happier your way or mine? No, I'm afraid it don't work that way. He'll grab at the first flashy thing with shiny ribbons on him. Then when he finds out there's a hook in it, it's too late. Wrong ideas come packaged with so much glitter, it's hard to convince them that other things might be better in the long run. That means that you're inviting me to leave. That's right. Iowa needs good dudes. And they're out there, even though the world isn't telling their stories. Fathers who fill their homes with dad jokes. Leaders who are building the world they want their kids to live in. Men who love the battle of virtue, character, truth, and goodness. I'm Colt Russell Dyke, and in this podcast, I'm convinced that the best dudes in the world live in Iowa, and I'm on a quest to find these dudes so that I can tell their stories. In today's episode, I talk with Luke Snowden, a nurse, a church planter, a good friend of mine, a husband, a father, a tried and true good dude, and I'm excited to tell his story today. So here's where I want to start, bro. Okay. So you can answer this question however you want, but every dude who comes onto the show is going to start out with this question. In your opinion, what's it mean to be a good dude? What's it mean to be a good dude? What's it mean to be a good dude? A good man, a good jabroni. Um, so, uh, so I think there's like a worldly perspective of what it means to be a good man. And yeah. there's like a Christian perspective of what it means to be a good man. I think the worldly perspective was, it would, would probably more emphasize like achievements, mm-hmm. status, um, and kindness. I mean, I think the, you know, even, you know, the secular world would agree that a good, loving, gentle, right. Yeah. You know, good man is that. And I don't think, and I think, the primary difference between, well, at least in my my head, how I, I I conceptualize manhood, and it's really based upon not only the study of scripture but also just my own experience. Yeah, um, is learning to uh, <laughs> learning to embrace self death. Okay. Yeah. To l- learning how to die. Yeah. So, um, lead pastor who developed me, his favorite definition for manhood, and I really liked it, is first to die. Mm-hmm. I've been kind of tinkering with that because um, I, I really, I really like it. Right? It emphasizes mm-hmm. initiation. It emphasizes leadership. It combines it with sacrifice. Right? First to take the bullet. Um, first to die. I've been kind of toying with it, and I wonder, like, if I would add this to it. This is a little cheesy, so maybe you're not going to like it, but. I might say this, manhood, biblical manhood is the first to die and the first to cry. It's like there's also this element of like gentleness and empathy, I think, that um, rounds off maybe a a good man who initiates and takes the bullet. I I don't know. Would you? I think think in a culture that would um, emphasize more like worldly views of like masculine traits of like stuffing down all your feelings rather than right. feeling them. I think that's a helpful qualifier. Um, 
I think, though, if we take the fruit of the Spirit, we take, uh, you know, Galatians 5, we look at the definition that Paul gives us of love in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, look at Jesus's uh, Beatitudes out of Matthew 5, I think those would include that kind of qualification in there. But I think yeah, in a, yeah. if you perceive in, in a culture something that would uh, discourage the kind of emotional life of a man, then yeah, I think it's a helpful qualification. I don't know that... You wouldn't you, use it, though. You wouldn't I, be like, I, I being a man is first to die and first to cry. I, I wouldn't say... I, the My reasoning for not including that qualification to it wouldn't be because I don't think it's, it's uh, true... But I also don't know that our, especially our younger generation needs to hear that qualification. Yeah. You know, maybe one reason why I'm drawn to that qualification is because I'm so far away from that being true. So I, th- it's been a couple months now, but I think about six months ago, I heard my kids talking about me. So uh-huh. Russell five, Della four. They were, they were talking about daddy. And so I, I came around the corner and just kind of eavesdropped on them uh-huh. like dads do. And they were arguing that with, with this subject. Della was saying, no, no, dad doesn't cry. Mm. And Russell was like, no, dad can't cry. So they were arguing <laughs> about whether or not I even have the, the capacity to cry. My kids, don't, they didn't even think it was possible for me to cry. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I was like, well, that's, that, you know, that's probably a problem. Or just an evidence that they're kids and they don't have the ability to differentiate very well. Um, yeah, nuance like that as well. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it could be an evidence of a problem. Um, Can you get it into a definition? What's what's uh, what's it mean to be a good dude? Uh, get, to get the emotional capacity in there. I mean, whatever you, however you would want to define it. You, yeah. So like, if you had to pack it in a punch, you would say being a good dude is what. Well, so I think this, uh, I sent you a text before this about differentiating between uh, biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. Yeah. The amount of overlap that's there. Um, I don't know that the emotional life of men is inherently distinct from what would be true of women as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I don't know that I would emphasize the emotional component as being distinctly man, what it means to be a man, and when I when I read, yeah, when, yeah, you're probably right. I, I think that I think there might be some emphases that are particularly true of men. Like there's a there would be like um, so the capacity for expressing emotion like tears might be um, less than a woman. Yeah, naturally, and I think even in a healthy man and a healthy woman. Right, um, yeah. but certainly the capacity needs to be there. If you, if you don't feel real empathy for somebody, or or don't have the ability to express, or you know whatever emotion that that's problem. Uh, but I don't know that that that's um, uniquely a trait of what it means to be a man. That's just a trait of what it means to be an image bearer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, so I'd that, maybe walk that back. I think you're right. I didn't mean to talk you out of it. I no, think it, well, but you I did. Think, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, though, is you know, definitions are not for the purpose of um, only stating bare truth. They're 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 tools, and so if you perceive mm-hmm. that there is a lack 
of um, the ability to express and experience emotion in men, offering up that qualification and the definition is helpful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you perceiving, especially if you're perceiving that in people in your church, you you wouldn't want to ignore that or just be like, oh, well, it just means what it means to be a human. Right, um, right. But yeah, so I, I would just, you know, whatever, you know, who are you talking to? Do they need to hear that? Yeah. That would be what I would, how I would measure it. Yeah. So maybe Cole Dykey needs to hear that, but maybe the, <laughs> the bro, the average bro in his twenties probably doesn't is what you're saying. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, okay. it, it's, it's hard to, you know, it all depends on, you know, what people's influences are and. Yeah. So give me your definition. I I think I keep on. I keep so on yeah. It. So no, I think that this is this is. I don't think it's any more than what I've already said. I when I read this, because I've been thinking about this a lot. I've, well, I've been thinking about it for years, but especially since we've yeah. been talking about this podcast, I've been really thinking. What is it about manhood? What is it to to be a good man biblically? Is to be a person who steps out to bleed and die, and that's I think chiefly. What makes a man a good man is that he yes. bears up. He bears yeah. up the responsibility to step out and bleed, yeah, and accepts it, and is able to, as Jesus did, you know, for the joy that was set before him, endure it. I've always had this hunch that joyful masculinity has a particular power to shape the world. And I think we've all seen glimpses of this. Maybe you grew up with a father who filled your childhood home with laughter, or you played for a coach who taught you the joy of hard work, or maybe you had a pastor who showed you the masculine poetry of joyful ministry. The sad truth is that these good dudes stand out to us because they seem rare. And the data is bleak here. Men are exponentially more likely to be addicted, homeless, suffer mental illness, or abandon the family. In fact, men are they're so much more likely to be in prison, for instance, that one sociologist refers to prisons as, quote, men's centers. The world isn't telling the stories of good men either. One media researcher took over 2,000 media portrayals of men from music to news to articles to movies, synthesized them and concluded that 75% of all media representations of men portrayed them as villains or aggressors. Religiously, things are much better. Men avoid church like it's the plague. The typical U.S. congregation is composed of roughly 61% female and 39% male. What's going on? What's going on here? Well, here's another surprisingly related question. How do you make a raccoon trap? Well, first, you take a tin can, and then you hammer in several nails towards the top of the tin can. It's important that you, you hammer the nails in at a 45-degree angle. And second, at the bottom of the tin can, you place a shiny piece of tin foil. A gum wrapper will do the trick just fine. And after these two steps, voila, you have a raccoon trap. How does this work? Well, raccoons love shiny things. So they'll catch a glimpse of the shiny piece of tin foil at the bottom of the can, and they'll put their paw into the tin can 
and grabbed the tin foil. Here's the catch. When they grab the tin foil, they ball up their paw. By balling up their fist, their paw becomes wider. Now, remember the nails driven in at a 45 degree angle? Well, when the raccoon tries to slide its paw back up out of the tin can, because of these nails driven at a 45 degree angle, it can't. It's stuck. The solution is simple. Just drop the tin foil. It's just tin foil. It's valueless, worthless, aluminum. But rather than letting go of the tin foil, the raccoon will suffer starvation and be enslaved to the tin foil, even to the point that when the hunter comes back upon it, it shoots it. Thinking about this riddle, thinking about this story, thinking about this raccoon trap drives people crazy. Why does this work on raccoons? Ah, that's good. One, one pastor defines biblical masculinity as, and uh, it's a pastor. I, I love a lot of his stuff. I disagree with a lot of his stuff, but I love his definition of masculinity. It's the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. Yeah. Which is what you just said. That's it. Yeah, that's a better way of wording what I was trying to articulate. I like the bleeding part. <laughs> Dude, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. Though. So Luke Snowden, um, nurse, uh, two-time church planter. Um, we've known each other for seven years, certified good dude, one of the best dudes I know. And so I just want to know, man, like, you're what, 43? No, no, no. I'm an old man. I'm 45 now. 45. Okay. Halfway to 90. For, 45, <laughs> nurse, church planter. How did you become the man that you are today, man? Tell, tell us the story. How did I become the man that I am today? Yep. Start with the birth certificate if you need to. A lot of pain, uh, a lot of stupidity. Uh, um, when I graduated high school, I heard you use this phrase earlier, and I think this was very appropriately applied to me at that age. Okay. The failure to launch phrase. Oh, yeah. Um, I graduated high school and I had two things in my mind and only two things in my life, in my mind, was I want to have sex as often mm -hmm. as I possibly could and I want to be high yep. as often as I could. And anything that came in between those two things, those things in my life, I regarded as a waste of my time and yeah. as, an, as an irritation in my life. And so um, I spent well, almost two years in pursuing that and not wanting to take responsibility. Couldn't keep a job, was stealing from people, mm -hmm. um, and just living a crazy life. And when what happened in my conversion um, was that I finally had to accept that work and responsibility was I, I had to die to those desires. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. when I talk about what it means to die is literally experiencing the death of those desires and accepting responsibility that the, the accepting of the responsibility of following through and like going to college or taking a job, 
and enduring in a job that you don't like, right. that doesn't pay what you think you deserve, right. with a boss who doesn't understand how to be a leader and sucks at everything that he or she does, yeah. and just sticking it in there, grinding it out, and dying every day with it, that that's actually the pathway to the good life. Yes, dude. That that's actually right. like the seedbed in which joy can like emerge. And it, I didn't know how, I certainly could not have articulated it at that time. And I certainly rejected, rejected that as an, as an even remotely a possibility in life. Right. But what happened in my conversion was, is I, God enabled me to experience that and learn that that was actually how it works. Mm. And so that was like the beginning of multiple stories of experiencing that kind of death in various areas of my life. And over and over and over again, I've learned that God is, um, I don't know if pleased is the right word, Hmm. Um, that God is certainly fine in his providential design of life to intentionally inject incredible pain in my life to help me see that I need to die in certain areas. And that pain enables me to let it go. And then I'm able to walk in a more reasonable direction. (laughs) Yeah, man. I mean, like, I I think everything that you said is just so absolutely true, man. Like, you, you have to so sufficiently set aside your base desires and the only way of actually articulating and talking about that in a way that's true to reality is death. You know, I I think that's why the scriptures are just so existentially true that like you have to die to those types of things. And, um, and unbelievably that's the pathway to life. Well, yeah. And Jesus says, if you want to save your life, yeah, you have to lose it. If you want to follow me where I'm in, we're in a Mark eight this week. Uh, Jesus, I'm thinking about this all week. I was like, oh, this is a great time for this conversation. If you want to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross daily and follow me, which is a call to death, which is, which, what's really odd is Jesus said all that to the disciples before the cross. So the disciples had no clue that that's what Jesus was literally going to do. Yeah. Yeah. They probably, just a figure of speech is what. Yeah. Because they knew the Roman practice because it was being done around them in Israel. And so for them, they've got to be like, what in the world? They're not, they don't understand that as like a religiously significant idea like right. we do. They saw it as like, what do you mean? We got to participate in Roman execution <laughs> and willingly subject yeah. ourselves to it. And the and that's, that's Jesus's definition of what it means to be a disciple is to actually engage that. And I don't, and here's what, I guess um, my experience of growing into a man is that when I was younger, I think I thought that that meant making intentional choices that would be hard for me to make. Yeah, okay, and I how think does it that includes change? that. It inc- but it transcends that? It transcends that. It means accepting pain and accepting horrible realities of, that are sprung upon you that are outside of your control and choice. Yeah. And not... And not using those as an excuse to abdicate responsibility, but to receive them. As one pastor said, and it makes me mad every time I hear it because I despise it, even <laughs> though it's, he's right. He says to learn to kiss the rod 
yeah. that God brings to you. And I just think, yeah. I, and I'll be honest, this is, this is probably, uh, I don't know if you guys are on this week in for your, or for your um, fighter group questions in the discipleship. Oh pack. yeah. Ours is uh, um, for this week is the question. I, I can't, if I can get it right is, um, what do you fear most about following Jesus? <laughs> yeah. And uh, my uh, yeah. my fighter group meets tomorrow morning. Okay. And uh, we're going to get the opportunity to discuss this. And, and my, as I've been thinking about it all week, it's I know. I know that God is going to bring pain. Yeah. That I don't have any choice in. And based upon the pain that I've experienced 10 years ago in divorce, based upon the pain I experienced um, in um, challenges with raising kids, especially kids that are adults, and learning how to uh, let kids be adults, and the pain, like real pain, yeah. that that causes in your soul that you can't even imagine when your kids are little. Gosh, no. Um, and like, I literally, I sit around like a jealous, sorry for the... Um, negative connotation this phrase is going to bring uh, but but i sit around like a jealous girlfriend in my home trying to figure out ways to get my kids to pay attention to me wow because i they don't care they literally just don't care about their parents like they're just, and yeah. i'm not saying my kids are rude or anything. i'm not saying that i'm just saying like they have their own life right. they're doing their own they have their own desires and it's like as a parent I, like it's like Oh, they used to like crawl up in my lap and hug me and tell me yeah. that they loved me. Wow. And now if I didn't force them, they probably wouldn't engage with me. <laughs> Dude, that's so convicting for me. That's so convicting for me. And I needed to hear that because with, uh, you know, a one month old, a four year old and a five year old, I know how bad this is going to sound, but a lot of what I try to do is try to get them to pay attention to anything that's not yes, me. But that's, that's, <laughs> that's what's crazy. And then you sit there and you, and you feel like the, I, you know, there's just a range of emotions that you feel. But the point is, is that you go through a certain kind of death and you have to learn how, how to accept that. And it's in learning how to accept though the, and, and embrace those things, of uh, pieces of death that allow you to bear the fruit of the spirit in those moments. So like, yeah, I know like this is one thing that I think I've had to suffer multiple deaths on throughout the years. Um, and especially in the period of, uh, where I went through my divorce was, um, expressing and feeling irritation toward my kids or toward my spouse, especially when it would erupt into, uh, like yelling or harsh words. Yeah. When you realize that those kinds of things um, result from a la from a refusal to re accept responsibility and a refusal to step out and suffer, when my, the reason right, why right. the reason why I would be irritated with my kids is because I wanted to relax and they are making a mess and they're making more noise than I'm capable of enduring and also experiencing relaxation at the same time. And so I have an inner war in me. My kids are not serving those needs. Mm -hmm. And rather than being willing to suffer and bleed and, and find joy in Christ through that, instead I fight, instead I fight for them to serve those um, less than responsible. Not, I just refuse to accept responsibility to endure and love them, and then yeah, I have to yeah. die to that. I have yep. to die to it and I die to the temp, you know whatever. So I'm, I'm rambling, but my point no, is, is yeah, that it's good. it's a. Uh, 
I'm, I, my, the journey in terms of being coming into manhood has been a series of what seems to be unwelcome and unappreciated deaths that have um, that haven't been lessons for me to learn because I don't. Here's the other part to it. I don't think there are men out there who don't know how to be a man. Okay. I don't think it, it's not an education issue. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, um, it's an abdication of what we know we should be doing. Yes. Issue. Yeah. It's, it's just easy. It, it's really hard. The implications of what it means to take responsibility, to step out and bleed are really freaking hard. Yes. To face. And it requires a certain kind of desperation to take the first step in doing that. Yeah. And, it, and that's why I think pain is usually involved with it. And God brings pain in because it motivates us, unlike anything else, to reach out in desperation to try something different. Yeah. Man, that's really good. So let me work out an idea in my head that I've got from listening to you. Because so if... If you're right, and I think you are, in defining uh, manhood as um, being the first to die, or you know um, mm-hmm. the the glad and the glad and joyful acceptance of sacrificial responsibility, the willingness to bleed mm-hmm. um, for those that you have responsibility for. So if if that's right, and I, and I think it is, then it seems to follow that one of the most important steps that a boy can make in becoming a man is is recognizing. The, the fact, and I think this is built into the cosmos, recognizing the fact that running from your pain will actually end up doubling your pain in the long run. If no, doubling it would be nice. It, it more yeah. than doubles your pain. Yeah. Yeah. If you it only doubled though, it. Avoiding pain is always going to double, triple, quadruple it or. Yeah. Avoiding, avoiding difficulty, avoiding challenges, avoiding conversations you need to have because you're worried about how the person's going to respond, avoiding conversations because you might be rejected or avoiding conversations because you might be disappointed only produces greater negative emotion on a scale that far outweighs what you would have experienced if you had experienced those things. Yeah. 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 This is why, you know, Jordan Peterson, he constantly talks about um, the dragon, right? Yeah. He, he, he talks about how this is why archetypally in mythology, where's the treasure in the gold? It's always in the dragon's cave. Mm-hmm. And so if you want the gold, you've got to battle the dragon. Mm-hmm. So like if, if you want lasting joy, lasting satisfaction in this world, then the places that you feel resistance or the, the things that you want to avoid, almost nine times out of 10, the things that you want to avoid is probably one of the best indicators that that's the direction you need to go. Mm-hmm. Are you know I I'm a Christian hedonist, so I explain it like this all the time. But one of the things that I think sin did to our nature is it radically jacked up our joy PS. Mm-hmm. Right, we all have this inward GPS that we think is going to lead us in the direction of joy, and what sin does is it rewires it so that our joy PS is absolutely jacked up. And so mm-hmm. one of the things the Holy Spirit does is it helps us recognize that actually. If, if you want lasting joy, you have to go the pathway of the cross. Mm-hmm. The dragons you have to fight if you want the treasure. Wrestling. This, this is a huge, yeah. unavoidable reality in wrestling. When I was wrestling, especially at the beginning of the season, 
wrestling an entire match is unenjoyable. And the reason it's not enjoyable, you can't experience joy in it, is because after the first 30 seconds, you're dead. Mm-hmm. But if over the course of the week, you know, the cor- you know, following weeks and months, you um, subject your body to um, ridiculous degrees of pain and suffering uh, through running, lifting weights, and going through what we called in my high school red flag practices, which were mm-hmm. absolute hell. Yep. If you subject yourself to that, then uh, a third of the way into the season, you're starting to actually have fun and yeah. enjoying your wrestling, and you're not dead halfway through it. Even if you're losing, you're not also feeling like death in the process of losing. Right. But if you lose and you're also out of shape, you're not only physically like wanting, uh-huh. you also have the emotional trauma of loss on top of it. Like it just right. it just compounds everything. When, yeah. when you put the work in, it just actually allows you anyway. So conversations, uh, I, I think about this a lot because this is the one thing that um like in the in recent years that I've struggled with as a man is uh stepping out and having conversations with my wife that i'm not sure that how she's going to respond to about how i feel about things or what i think yeah what what my desires are in life and that oh gosh i'm so bad at having those yeah yeah like if i'm if i'm upset or something i don't want to make her feel bad yeah and i don't want her to feel like i'm being demanding and I don't want her to perceive me in a way that is less than favorable. And so you you suspect that when you begin to feel that type of resistance, you, you learn to say, oh, maybe there's some gold here. Maybe this is the direction I need to go. Yes, there's that. Okay. And it's also, it's also the, um, the realization that it's your resp- what it means to be the person who is uh, called to step out and bleed is not to be some uh, you know caricature of Arnold Schwarzenegger all buff right to stand up and defeat the demons that's not that's not the image right the image is a regular dude instead of defeating the demons taking the blow and being willing to suffer whatever loss comes by being the first one to say something. Husbands who wait for their wives to say something and initiate conversations have abdicated their responsibility and expected their wives to step out and bleed before them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so husbands who wait to have hard conversations with their wives are, and that's that, and I'm talking about myself. I'm not talking about anybody else. When I'm tempted to do that, I bet you're talking about a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm tempted to do that, what I'm do, what I'm basically telling my wife is, I don't want to bleed. You do it. Yeah. It's just an inextricable fact about reality that there is a cross in front of you that mm-hmm. needs to be bared, and if you refuse to bear that cross, then your wife is going to trip on it. Your wife is going to fall on it, or worse, she's going to have to carry it. Yeah, and and that's why for me, I don't have a. Pro- I shouldn't say I have a problem with it. I prefer the lang. I I don't prefer the language of men lead and women follow. Okay. I prefer the language of 
men that more rather than women following men or women hide in men. That okay. men create a context in which a woman doesn't have to step out and can find safety right. behind her husband. And you think about, I mean, yeah. we, we, I mean, we Western, twenty first century American people, we don't, we t- we don't tend to see the world outside our doors as hostile, because um, we've been able to create a relatively soft and comfortable society. Mm-hmm. But outside of our particular cultural context. Most people perceive the world outside their doors as being a ho- essentially hostile. And so the idea of a man stepping out to take and uh, the brunt and to bleed was a very real image for them. Yes. You know, going out to find food. Wasn't theoretical. No. Going out to, um, I, mean, the, the, I mean, just even with war, just our whole... The way in which we fight war and handle war these days is so different, and it's a uh, compared to what they did in the past. And the idea, just the idea that men would bear up and take the responsibility to not just figuratively or spiritually, but to literally bleed so that their wives and children can be safety. And, and you know this because we also know what it looks like to not be a man. The ultimate image yeah. of someone failing as a man is using his wife or children as a shield to protect himself. Right. We all know that we all instinctually, whether you're a Christian or not, you know, when you see a man step out and pull his wife in front of him, that that man has failed as a as a person. Like he's he's failed as a man. Have you seen that picture going around right now on social media? No, Um, it's it's an image of exactly that. It's it's an image of a of a grown man who's uh, watching a bicycle race and the bicyclist must have crashed. And so he's he's rolling off of the track off of the road and into the crowd. And, uh, the grown man is hiding behind his teenage son. Oh gosh. Using him almost like a shield. Right. And they, and they contrast it with another picture, which is awesome, which is the opposite. It's, um, it's of a father and a son. And, um, uh, there was a broken bat, right. And so a broken bat is flying into the, into the crowd and, uh, a father sticks his hand out in front of the son and it's hitting, hitting his arm instead of the sun. So. Well, that's, but, the, but the, that gets to the heart of what Paul's argument in Ephesians 5, right? right? That Headship. husbands husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? He stuck, out, he, he stood out and he stepped in and we hide in him as yeah. he suffers the wrath of God and as he bleeds for us that we, we can fi- find safety in him. And, um, and, and that's, and men are to image that for their wife and their kids. Right. It's not so much the, uh, that a man is supposed to always be the one to lead everything. However you define that. It's that the man is responsible to make sure that the wife doesn't have to, or doesn't, or, or doesn't feel like she's not sure if her husband can step out or will step out. And bleed for her, yeah. And um, that includes not just converse, you know, for like I said, conversations with your spouse, but and also like physical, real danger. But just in in every scenario, I mean, that's that's ultimately why we, you know, the scripture, as we believe, would teach that men should be pastors and and preachers is because it's not because women can't do it. No, certainly it's not because they lack competency yeah. or ability. It's because men are, because we understand that preaching 
is an act of war, right. not figuratively. It is a literal, a literal war that's being entered into, and men are called to be the ones to step into it and bleed through it, and right, or die through it. And so the, at least that's that's the intention of it. The whole yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah, I could go on about that, but the point is, is that um, yes. Uh, accepting that that is God's plan for me is scary Mm -hmm. (laughs) and profoundly difficult to accept Mm. for me. And that's probably just, and then, and then for me, that's because I I used to say that kind of, I remember years ago, I would say this kind of stuff, but I'd never actually like profoundly endured it. Wow. And then when I did, I was like, that sucks way worse than anybody's ever described it. Wow. And it it's uh, very, actually, it's very difficult. But that's why God, I think that's why God puts us in those circumstances, because I was clearly too stupid to figure it out that I needed to do it without him putting me in those circumstances. <laughs> that's profound. Oh, can I go back to something yeah. in your story? Yeah. How'd you, how'd you, how'd you quit smoking pot, dude? The raccoon trap works because the raccoon is so enamored by the shiny tin foil, worthless though it is in value, that it would prefer to die rather than let it go. It would prefer to die rather than let it go. Um, I've told this story a few times, and men in particular always identify with it. It's a hard story to stomach, to listen to. It's difficult to think of the raccoon with its paw stuck in the can holding a piece of shiny tin foil. Because most dudes in the modern world identify deeply with this story. We can't seem to drop the tin foil, and it's killing us. Laziness is so shiny, but you just can't let it go. Lust is so shiny, but you just can't let it go. The fear of man is so shiny, but you just can't let it go. And it feels like you're just going to die with your paw stuck in the trap all for tin foil. It's shiny, it looks satisfying, but it's just killing you. It looks like it'll bring joy, but it just brings sorrow. Looks like it will bring happiness, but it just brings shame. It looks shiny, but it traps you. Now here's the dilemma in the modern world. There's a million shiny things that our culture flashes before our eyes. So what's required of men to thrive in a world of shiny objects? The willingness to delay gratification. Or as Luke says in the podcast, embrace the suck today for the sake of joy tomorrow. Embrace the suck today for the sake of joy tomorrow. Here's the way that one popular psychologist phrases it. Quote, perhaps something better might be attained in the future by giving up something of value in the present. Long ago in the dim mists of time, man began to realize that reality was structured as if it could be bargained with. We learned that behaving properly now, in the present, regulating our impulses, practicing discipline over vices, could bring rewards in the future in a time and place that did not yet exist. Another word for this is 
sacrifice. How did you stop being a pothead? Um, well, I smoked pot every day, and I couldn't have imagined what it was like to not. For, smoke like, pot. for like two years, you said you were high, basically. Yeah. Nonstop. Well, if I couldn't afford it or whatever, I you know, didn't have it, but yeah, I did as much as I could. Yeah. And, um, um, <clears throat> Boy, I don't know how. I mean, I had a pretty radical conversion. That and and I think it was a combination of distance. I'd moved away from the people that I was with, doing that with, and then um, engaging in the Christian community that I was a part of at that time. Um, I was able to distract myself sure. sufficiently yeah. for the most part. There were times that I, you know, went out and used. Uh, when I was alone, yeah, in uh, you know, an evening, but um, but that was why I was ne- I needed uh, frequent Christian community. Yeah, apart from it, I was floundering. Yeah, what uh, what what was it? Was there a lot of withdrawal? Did you experience that? Or I I don't know if that comes along with pot or not. And it wasn't withdrawal. It was more like uh, I f- I felt like um. Like I was missing something. Yeah. Like, um, not FOMO. It's kind of like FOMO, but like more like, uh, like there was this. Uh, I, 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 let me put it to you this way. When I was yeah. high, I felt comfortable. Okay. It allowed you to kind of allow- loose, relax. I was able to um, manage my anxieties and my fears. And I was able to relax enough to be able to enjoy things. And when I wasn't high, I was filled with anxiety and I was filled with fear and guilt and shame. And, um, and I, and I would realize I have things I need to do or my life is going to stink. And I didn't want to, I just didn't want to do it. I was running. I would just did not want to have to take responsibility for anything in life. No, there's a sharp edge to all those feelings. Yeah, and so and so what you know, smoke pot and I could ignore that sufficiently to be able to do whatever I was wanting to do at the time. So, yeah. And I could yeah, and yeah. and the hard thing was was then accepting responsibility and facing all of the challenges that would be in front of me without the aid of that uh, warm blanket that pot gave me. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, huh. yeah. So, what would you say to somebody who wants to quit pot but doesn't know how? Got to die. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you literally, you literally just have to, you have to come to a point where you're willing to accept the pain, to embrace the pain of that not having it will bring you. Yeah. And learn to manage it. Whether that's with the help of a pastor or counselor or whatever, you just have to learn how to how to embrace the pain that will come. Right. Because there's not, I mean, yeah. The joy was set before Jesus and the cross. It wasn't a happy, clappy experience for him on there. No. And our definition, I know here at Frontier, definition for joy does not exclude the reality 
of absolute suck. Right. And um, it's not just that there's something noble, there's something essential for manhood to be able to look at absolute suck and say, I'll take it. Yeah, it's built a little bit like a trampoline, isn't it? There's elasticity in it where it seems like the deeper you go down sometimes in pain and suffering, the higher your capacity is to go up into joy and happiness. Well, people, so. like uh, you know this because you, you watch what happens between people who go, go to war, like men who go to war. Yeah. And they experience that pain together. It, right. it does something profound to create a bond between them that is not just unbreakable it's it's profound i just right. saw this video it was crazy of this uh guy who i think the korean war i think it was the korean war and during the korean war uh he had this buddy that he was on a ship with or i don't know what they were doing but anyway they hadn't talked to each other in like 50 years and this dude just randomly found him found his friend and just randomly showed up at his house. And a guy answers the door, doesn't recognize him. And as soon as he does, they break down and, and embrace and the joy they had in, in coming together. Anyway, but that wow. come, but yeah, that yeah. kind of connection and that kind of joy is forged in the midst of literal war. Right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, you got. Yeah, I got. I got to read. This. I mean, this is spot on to what you're saying right here. So, there's an article you can read out there called "Sometimes I Miss War." Yeah, and he 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 talks about the male need for brothers on a mission experiencing pain together. And here's here's the quote from this article. I mean, what a, what a name for an article. Sometimes I miss war. He says, "Quote: I hated war, mm -hmm. but strangely enough, I loved it too. Uh -huh. I'd find myself wishing I were back overseas while driving alone." or in the midst of a crowded party. Things were simpler in war. People understood me in war. I had deep relationships in war. Granted, there was no running water, and I defecated in a barrel on a regular basis. But the laughter was real, the friends were real, and the experience felt more real than ordering a coffee at Starbucks while somebody in athleisure berated the barista for getting her order wrong. Yeah, so the the one of the painful realities i've had to accept in my life is that the promises of ease and comfort are lies yes yeah and when i look at being able to sit down on my couch have my wife make me a ham sandwich and bring me a beer and watch the cubs win like that's the image in my like that to me is like the pinnacle of like like my in terms of like what I innately think is like the ultimate pleasure, right? Your joy, PS destination. Yeah, like that experience, uninterrupted rest, relaxation, and being entertained, right? Mm -hmm. And served, and it turns out it's a freaking it's a joke. Yeah, it not only does it not deliver, but it undoes joy everywhere else. Yes. It imprisons you. Yeah, and and the embrace of getting up, making my own sandwich, and taking care of responsibilities around the house and serving my wife, that actually ends up producing an, a disproportionate amount of joy than what could have otherwise been experienced. Mm. And that lesson is one of the biggest things that distinguishes somebody who hasn't transitioned to manhood. Yes, yes. Yeah, 
The wow. guy, the yeah. guy, the guy who th- who sits at, at home and looks at um, looks at his boss who's incompetent, looks at his job that doesn't pay him what he thinks he deserves, looks at the, his responsibilities as a waste of his time. Yeah, and says, "I don't want to do this anymore," but says, "You know what? This is what I need to move into the future, to build a life of joy and flourishing." And persists and goes in despite all those feelings and embraces it. That's a man. Yeah. Yeah. The guy who goes out and looks well, for. Sir, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, no, no, no need to heap shame on him. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, is that the, the thing is, is that I guess the yeah. the story of manhood is just experiencing whatever pains. At least in my experience, having to go through real pain to learn. That's not the path forward because I've made all those mistakes, right? Yeah. So yeah. How, how, here's a question about your life. How'd you wind up from, how, how'd you go from quitting pot to being a pastor? What was that pathway like? Well, so what happened was, is when, so I was actually living in Newton, Iowa, and um, it, it all, it's all rooted in my conversion experience. So what happened was, is I was, it was the middle of the night, like 3 a.m., and I was high in my room. I was actually listening to a band called Typo Negative. And if anybody listening to this knows who that is, you'll know what kind of place I was in life. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Had my black light on with my absolute vodka bottle, you know, with the with the highlighter mm-hmm. fluid in it, you know, to make it glow, whatever. I thought it was really cool. Anyway, yeah. um, and I just had this overwhelming sense at like 3 o'clock in the morning that everything in life was wrong. And I got up. Wrote a note to my friends. Didn't realize I was experiencing conviction of sin. But I just wrote to my friends, I'm going to the woods to think for a while, which was stupid. I don't know why I wrote that. But I got in my truck and drove home to my parents' house. Okay. And I got to my parents' house at 7 a.m., who I had not talked to them for months because I was into all kinds of drugs and problems. And anyway. Yeah. Um, and I thought they were wow. going to kick me out. My dad thought I was my brother coming into the house and came down the stairs. I thought he was going to yell at me. Kick okay. me out. And instead, yeah. it's, like, it's like a prodigal son moment. It, you know, make you teary-eyed and all that. My dad saw me. He was like, Luke, and hugged me and welcomed me. Wow. And, wow. Um, so they, you, were, you were expecting shame and rejection, mm-hmm. and your dad hugged you and embraced you mm-hmm. and welcomed you. And I, because at that moment, I knew everything. I just had this immediate awareness at like three o'clock in the morning that everything in my life was wrong and something had to change. I couldn't sit anymore. I had to do something different. And I didn't know what it was. And I just went home. My parents didn't reject me. They took me to church that night at a crazy charismatic church in Cedar Rapids, of all places, awesome. called River of Life Church. Okay. I don't know if they're Pentecostal or what, but they were, I mean, they were Assemblies of God, maybe something like that. Yeah, it was wild. And we went in there, and um, I remember the preacher mismanaged a text that I look back on now and I laugh about. Anyway, um, he preached on it, and the Lord used it to show me that I needed Jesus, and I wow, repented man. of my sin. And from that moment, from that moment, I knew I needed to do something. I ended up at a Bible college right after that. Wow. And Emmaus Bible College in uh, Dubuque. And when I was there, I took a, I took a, um, I had to take a Bible class. Mm-hmm. I would thought I was going to be a wrestling coach. That's what, that's what I was hoping to do sure. at the time. And, uh, and thought I would get an education degree. But then I took a Bible class, fell in love with studying the Bible and doctrine and theology. But I thought the church was stupid. And yep. I thought her pastors were even stupider, and um, I wanted nothing to do with that. And so, I was just going to go and study like academic theology, 
And then uh, by some providence of God, it's kind of a long story, um, felt the call to plant a church and um, ended up becoming a pastor. Mm, So, yeah. Yeah. So there's a, that's sort of the trajectory. (laughs) What are the types of lessons you learned um, while being a pastor? Your first go. How how long were you a pastor? Um, eight years. So eight. no, no. Ten, ten, ten years. Ten years. What I were the big lessons? If you had to distill like two or three from that season of your life, the big lessons. Yeah. You're probably what twenty five years old to thirty five years old in there. Uh yeah, I started at uh, twenty five. Twenty five. Okay. Yeah, tw- I think twenty five. Twenty four. Twenty five. Okay, sweet. Um, big lessons. Um, oh man, there's so many. <laughs> um, yeah, my uh, I I thought when I was so weird because when I started, I thought I, I my heart was warmed toward the church, and I I was wanting to serve God's people genuinely and sincerely, but I looked around at mo- the churches around me and I primarily saw them as failures. Okay. And I had a yeah. very arrogant and prideful disposition about me. You're going to be the one to do it right. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. I'm going to fix I'm going to fix the all the issues and the stupidities of the church. And um it turns out that um I didn't know what I was talking about and what I perceived as failures were just my mainly my ignorance and pride. And was blind to my own. So I think the biggest, the biggest lesson I, I learned through all that was a degree of humility. But in terms of, um, in terms of just being a man, learning that loving people and like genuinely loving and caring for people is, um, is legitimately the 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 pathway of being a pastor. I assumed mm-hmm. yeah. that my good theology and good reformed ecclesiology and good reformed uh, methodology would set things straight in the world, and um, that turned out to not be true because no one really cares about that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, only nerds who think that they're smarter than everyone else right. thinks that that yeah. stuff is like really important. Um, and it's not that it's unimportant; it's just well, it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. You can do everything amazing in the world, and if you have not love, you're nothing. Right. All yeah. of that good reform stuff is absolute rubbish if you don't know how to love people well. And I think that, that that's probably the biggest lesson I've learned, not just at that period, but at any point in pastoring, is that loving people well is is what makes whatever good theology you have worthwhile. So. Yeah, Baxter, Richard Baxter in his book, The Reformed Pastor, says, yes. the thing I hate most is seeing beautiful, true orthodoxy become dead in the hands of loveless pastors. Mm-hmm. Pastors who don't know how to be good men, because yeah. they aren't, I mean, because that's ultimately what it comes down to when it comes to being a good man and stepping out and leading and bleeding is loving people. That's what, mm-hmm. mo- I mean, that's what motivated Christ to do what he did, and that's ultimately what's to motivate uh, a man's actions in that way and, and a pastor acting out in that way. Um, if it's not in love, it will, well, you see, there's all kinds of examples of pastors failing to love people. Well, no one needs a, 
reminder of that. But the point is, is that learning to love is um, not only the pathway to manhood, but it's ultimately what's necessary for at least, at least what I learned for being a pastor. Yeah, it seems to be, you know, the Romans talk about gravitas, the concept of gravity and, and weightiness and being able to distinguish what a person's presence feels like, you know, and I think that, I think love is one of the primary qualities that gives a man gravitas in life and gravity in life. Um, if, a, if a person loves you, man, their words are going to drop like an anvil, especially if it's a word mm -hmm. of correct, or correction or something like that. Man. Or encouragement. Or encouragement. It drops yeah. like a hammer when you know mm -hmm. that person, when that person has lived in such a way that you know that they love you. Yeah. yeah. It's, like a, it's like a deep fat fryer is one of the ways I've thought of it. It, it, what it does has the capacity to take things that are already delicious, like Twinkies, and make them even better. But it also has the capacity to take things that I don't like, like onions. I don't like onions. You deep fat fry them as an onion ring. I love them, right? So like, it, you know, you, you got a word of correction for somebody, a conviction for somebody. And uh, when there's love present, it, it deep fat fries it in such a way that it makes it palatable for people. Maybe even tasty. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. The the bit I think the the yeah. In becoming a pastor, one of the things I really cared about was trying to make sure that whatever I was doing, that it would actually be help be helpful and make a difference for people. Um, and, yeah. and I learned quickly and I still, I forget it all the time. I just had a conversation. I've been like beating myself up over, uh, somebody said something about another church and their methodology. And I just was like, Oh, I'm going to teach you about church history and, you know, just running, running my mouth, indulging myself, not caring for the person. Well, okay. yeah. and I real, and, and in those moments, I, I realize I wasn't loving that person. I was indulging myself and in doing so, I am confident that nothing I said was actually helpful to her as true as everything I said was. Yeah. And I'm wasting not only their time, but my time doing it. Huh. And um, I, I know, especially among younger reformed guys, there's this tendency to um, fail, fail to see that there's only relative value to good theology and good exegesis. Yeah. When it's not done and used in love, it fails to actually. The point is, is that love is the prior. I mean, that's what Paul's whole argument there that, you know, all of our spiritual gifts and all the good stuff that we bring has relative value and will fall away. But love is the one thing that's going to remain. And um, yeah, I mean, that's that's why that's why being a good a man who steps out to bleed is so stinking important. Right. Because it's an act of love. Yeah. It's ultimately what it is. It's an act of love. It's a call for men to love women and to love their children and to love others yeah. by being yeah. willing to step out and do it. And when it's done that way, it's, um, well, turn your wife on and it'll make your kids love and respect you. 
Hmm. <laughs> bring joy in your life. <laughs> so you're halfway through your forties now, man. I'm curious, like, what do you wish you knew about manhood in your twenties and your thirties that you know now? Oh my word. You have the power to drop the tinfoil. And I really don't have to identify what the tinfoil in your life is. I, I bet every man listening to this podcast just intuitively in his guts has some piece of tinfoil that's personal to him that comes to mind. Some vice, some addiction, some pet sin that he's nursing, knowing full well it plans on killing him. But you do have the power to drop the tinfoil. You must die to yourself. You must put to death the weakness within you that pulls you out of purpose and towards the shiny tin foil. If you can delay gratification, if you can sacrifice yourself at the altar first, what becomes of the tin foil? Well, the tin foil then loses all of its power over you and becomes exactly as it is a worthless gum wrapper. So the task before you is simple. One Christian theologian, Peter Lightheart, points out that sacrifice is built into the fabric of every day. Quote, You started your life in the cozy comfort of your mother's womb, but then you got squeezed out screaming. That day, you died to the womb to come alive to the world. Then you had your first day of school, your first date, your wedding day, your first child, and so forth. And each of these crisis moments is a small death that shatters the world as you know it. You are constantly dying to this to come alive to that. You live sacrifice. So the task before you is simple, although it's not easy. Two questions. First, ask yourself, what must be sacrificed in my life today? Pay attention. Stand up straight. Open your eyes and look around you. What are the messes that you're ignoring or creating? What are you willfully turning a blind eye to or avoiding? What are you willfully numbing yourself with, knowing full well it's a trap? And you'll notice that after enduring a short season of increased acute pain, life becomes better without the vice. Life becomes more joyful without the vice, and not only yours, but the lives of everyone around you who are connected to you by a thread of care or love. See, good dudes don't make sacrifices for the sake of their self-image to appear tough. They do it for a healthier marriage, a happier family, a more purposeful mission. And then second, what would be the largest, most transformative, most life-changing of all sacrifices that I could make? If small sacrifices produce fruit, then what's the biggest sacrifice I could make? And without a doubt, the answer to that question that any thinking human creature will arrive at eventually is my own life. And this is why the Christian faith commands us to die to ourselves, not because God is a joy killer. It's worth reminding ourselves that, as one Christian theologian once said, it's the devil who is truly a prohibitionist. He hates pleasure and only uses it as a hook. It's God who offers us a joy, a cross first that leads to eternal satisfaction. This is why when God comes to earth in the flesh, as the person of Jesus, his life culminates on a cross. A cross because he saves us 
from our tinfoil. I'm in my 30s now. I'm catching up to you. Yeah. I'm closing the gap. I'm thinking about it because um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I think I, I'll go back to what I said earlier. I don't know that I've ever suffered from a lack of knowledge of what I need to do to be a good man. Yeah, that's right. I think, I think my problem is, is that in the moment, in the circumstances, the seemingly random circumstances of life as they arise, in those moments, I, I really honestly believe the promises of sin. And mm-hmm. I think I find them to be more tasty and delicious than the promises of going, of picking up my cross. And I don't know that it would be possible for me to be back in my 20s somehow and know that without having suffered the many kinds of death I've had to experience to relieve myself of those delusions. Mm-hmm. I don't know that 20-year-olds can really get that until they've experienced pain necessary to relieve themselves of it. We yeah. have to be disabused of our delusions. Right. Which is, um, which is why, um, which is why some people tend to be in some cases, rightfully skeptical of young leaders. There are very few people yeah. in their youth that have the wisdom uh, to my brother is an example of this. Um, he from good Lord from his youth that that guy has known that the way of the cross is the is the right way of life. And Jimmy, yeah, and he he unlike any person I personally know, yeah, has my uh, whole adult life, even in my twenties when I was first a pastor. Um, that he just he knows how to walk he knows how to live that life and he doesn't seem he doesn't seem like it's difficult for him to accept i struggled to i mean when i when i say that question this last week what do you fear most in following jesus like that i fear the pain that i have that i know i'm going to have to face and that i and i'm facing now i fear it yeah yeah. Because I really, at the, in my heart, I struggle to maintain the faith and the hope that the promises of the gospel are truly real. Right. And, and yeah. In yeah. your experience, does that get easier as you age as a follower of Jesus? You know, God's too wise to let you get easy. Let it get easier. <laughs> he just he finds yeah. he finds uh, the area of your life where you're like, right. I got this, and then he just he just puts an atom bomb on it, and it and it just and then you're yeah. That's what he did to Job, right? Yeah. And he knows he knows. He's too wise, like you said. He's too wise. He yeah. knows that the worst thing in the world is a uh, is a man who's bored, a man yeah. who's um, a man who is who is set on coasting. And the thing is, is as we're my and my temptation in my head is to think that God is you know, 
not loving, vindictive, doesn't really, it doesn't really care, or whatever, you know, all those silly accusations. Um, and in those moments, it just reveals my, here, here, I, you know, here's something I think that would help someone in their 20s. Yeah. Shoot, man, right from the hip. Uh, and I doubt that anybody actually has the control to do this. Yeah. <laughs> But if there was some way to enlarge the, the the imagination of the mind of a 20-year-old, that would do it. What, what do you mean by that? Unpack that a little bit more for me. Um, my imagination for regarding the ability of the joy of Jesus to satisfy me more through pain struggles but my imagination to imagine the joy from indulging a sinful desire or a selfish desire like i i get that i see it and i feel like i can accept it like my my imagination can envision that and it accepts that as a real thing but when i look at the joy that's promised by picking up my cross and bleeding that my imagination struggles to accept as a reality right and, you know, um, I think the, what, what happens is that you go through those periods of, of real pain where the, you experience those deaths and it forces your imagination to reconcile that, oh, yeah, that really does happen. You right. Know, the, 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 those joys really are there and they're superior to the other. But, right. But my imagination can't capture it until I go through the pain that forces me to endure and see it. Right. So if, if if I could in my twenties have, have been able to actually really truly see it and imagine it, (laughs) maybe that would have saved me some. (laughs) Yeah. Let me say it back to you, man. Let, Let me say it back to you. So you're saying that the ability to imagine that, an act of worldly pleasure will bring you pleasure is narrow-mindedness and very, very easy. Yes. But the ability to to look at the the death in front of you or the difficult thing that you keep putting off or the thing that you know you need to do but you don't want to do, the ability to look at that and to really see that not around that but through that is joy mm-hmm. the ability to look at the thing that you don't want to do and, and to know that there's a doorknob on that that if you open it and go through it there's joy you're saying that's an act of imagination i mean that's that's the definition of imagination you mm-hmm. need to be able to see a world that you currently don't see yeah is that right and believe it's real and believe it's it's a real world yeah yeah, yeah. that's good man yeah I mean, it's so funny to me. I can imagine Tolkien's world and and be and be thrilled with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's crazy though, you know. It just I mean it just shows the how uh tenuous our faith is, you know. At least for me. I don't know. I mean maybe some people's is so much, a lot stronger than mine, but I you know uh, the the reality of 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 experiencing pains and disappointments and and knowing that you have to face up to and and press into difficulty 
uh, my uh, it, it strains the credulity of my faith because the my my I, I my at heart and this is <laughs> I thought I got over this after my divorce but in my heart I really do think that even though I would reject with all of my effort the propositions of the prosperity gospel, the seeds of it are in my soul, and I want it to be true so bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. What was it like bouncing back from your divorce? I mean, you're, you're like life isn't perfect for you, but like your your church plant right now, mm-hmm. you gotta you got a great wife. I mean, Brenda's the absolute bomb. I mean, yeah. how'd you bounce back? Got back on the horse. Didn't so stay down. It was a long, long, slow process. You know, the uh, I found it very difficult to find consolation in Scripture. David was really upsetting to me. I read David. David yeah. would be lamenting his pain. And his sorrow, and then he'd have some, you know, halfway through, a third of the way through the psalm, he'd have some insight or some experience or awareness of some glorious aspect of who God is, and that would sort of turn, it sort of turns the psalm on a hinge that mm-hmm. result, turns it into praise. And I would read those, and I would be frustrated because that wasn't my experience. I'd be like, how did he get there? And I don't see how he got there, and it'd make me angry, right? Yeah. But then, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so weird. God is so weird. He does, he, God is just bizarre. Right. Then I hear a quote from Winston Churchill. Really? Yeah. It was wow. Mo- I mean, Churchill's mo- brilliant. I'm it was sure the most helpful quote. thing. It was the most, in that moment. What was, sorry, in that keep, moment. Yeah, keep saying it. In that moment, it was the most helpful thing. And then I was frustrated because it was really helpful. And then I later learned it's a country song, too. And that what really was the, co- oh, if you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah. That's the Churchill yeah. quote yeah, that's and it. the country song. I heard it. I'd never heard it before. Yeah. And then um, I heard that quote and I was like, yes, that's what this is. What, what do you don't try to get out of it? Just run through it. Just what, go. Keep keep talking. What's it mean? If I'm going through hell, why should I keep going? You what do you you, you lay down and die? Yeah. If you're in hell, what are your options? You know the uh, the um, uh, Jesus in uh, John chapter six. He's he's ta- uh, says he's the bread of life. He says, okay, now folks, you got to eat my bread and drink my blood. And they're like, what? And he's like, yeah, eat my blood and. Eat, eat my body and drink my blood or you are not going to be in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And people bolt. They're like, this is crazy. And then right. right after that, he goes to the disciples and he says, look, everybody else left you. Where are you guys going? You guys going to leave too? And the disciples' response is absolutely hilarious. They're like, where are we going to go? <laughs> <laughs> Who else like, has the words of life? Yeah, you? like you're the, you're the thing. We're stuck with you. Like, And that's, that's the reality of it. If you're in hell, that's where you are. There's no change in it. Mm-hmm. And I had to, and it was a kind of a moment where I was like, oh yeah, I'm in hell in this moment, whatever, you know, figuratively, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And what am I going to do? But just, yeah. I, I, I guess I'll just move forward. And, and at that moment, rather I, I, I just, it was, I was just like, okay, here are the things I got to do to move forward. And I just did. I don't know what it was. I just, it just was clear to me at, mo- at a moment. 
I was in, you know, misery and self-loathing and whatever, you know, depressed and yeah, angry yeah, yeah. and suicidal and, you know, all the things, all right. the things, right? And then I, I heard that and I was like, okay, I just, I guess I just got to move forward and I did. And you did. And then eventually ended up here. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. That's not like a real spiritual answer, but that's what happened. Yeah, no, I like it. Yeah. Just the ability, like the ability to get up, dust yourself off, get back on the horse, keep moving forward. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't describe it as that. I think it was just resigning myself that this sucks. And yeah. I just got to, I just got to keep doing with it and hopefully it gets better. And one day it did. One yeah. day it just didn't suck. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow things just started falling into place. And yeah. And and the thing is, is you can tell somebody that, but unless they have that sort of, I don't know, I, I would. Imagination. Consider, yeah. Right? The imagination. Um, yeah. And the, and the realization that, that there's no choice but to just accept it and move forward. I think so much of the time we just don't accept that the things are. And that's where I, really where I was. I was just angry that what happened happened. Mm-hmm. And I was resentful that it happened. And I was angry at God that it happened. And I was angry at all the things. And I wasn't accepting that this is just my reality and I just need to move forward with it. And once I did, and that quote, for whatever reason, helped me. Um, were you were you whiny? Were you a whiner in that season? Or would you not identify with that? I was angry. You were angry? Wrathful. Yeah. Yeah. I was so angry at God. Right. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I'm, I, so you know, in, in mythology, and I would argue uh, biblically as well, there's this idea of the golden wound. I talk about it all the time, right? This idea that... It's, it's not, you know, despite our wounds, but it's precisely our, our wounds that get dipped in gold and become treasure to the world. Oh, yeah. Right? So, like, uh, I see that on the cross. Mm-hmm. I think it's just an absolute reality that the greatest gifts that we give as individuals to the world always come from our deepest wounds. I think that's why John records, you know, the centurion sticks, G- jabs Jesus in the side with the spear after he dies on the cross, pulls it out, blood and water pours out of Jesus' side, right? The, the water that cleanses us and the blood mm-hmm. that covers us. So the greatest gift comes from the deepest wound. I found that to be true in my own life. The things that... one So uh, Robert Bly, he, he writes about um, archetypal male myths, and um, he's super, super insightful dude. He says, if you want to know what your purpose in life is as a man, ask yourself one question, what hurts? Mm. And then follow that. Or what he, are you avoiding? What are you avoiding? Yeah. He goes on to say, your genius is always hidden within your wound. And like, I think one of the reasons why you're so effective as a preacher and as a leader and as a pastor is because because you know what it's like to go through a season where you are pissed, like angry at God. And since you know what that was like, man, I think that's one of those wounds that the Lord dipped in gold for you. It's not, oh, even though I had that tough season back then, now I'm a solid preacher. No, no, it's it's precisely because you had that. Mm -hmm. It's because of that wound that blood and water pours out of you man so like go i don't know 
Golden wound, man. I think that's your golden wound. Well, something golden would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to hang on to this conversation for one more question, all right? We've been at it now for an hour, and it's been great. I want to hold on for one more one more question, okay? So, like, I have this dream with this podcast, and uh, it's a far-out dream. I, I don't know if this will ever happen, but success for me in recording the Iowa Needs Good Dudes podcast, success for me, the greatest success I can imagine, the greatest achievement I could possibly imagine this podcast achieving is someday Russell and Jack grow up. And they've mm. got an entire library of father and son conversations they mm. can listen to in order to know what it, what it means to be a man. So mm -hmm. I love the idea. Who knows if it'll ever happen? 15, 20 years from now, my kids listen to this podcast. So speak to them quickly. Think about Russell and Jack in 15 or 20 years. What do you think is the most important thing that you think young men today need to know about life? A good pastor will always say that their hope and their joy is in Christ. So I would, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that uh, there's something beyond that. Um, I think that's ultimately the answer. But uh, yeah, there are there are unique things that that implies, and unique ways in which that works out especially in a young man's life. Yeah. And I think and it may not be related to, you know, just young men. It may be true. It's probably true for women as well. Um, okay. Uh, but I think, I think the biggest, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for myself when I say this, because this has been my, probably my biggest struggle as a man. And that is that, um, is accepting that today doesn't have to be happy and that's okay because um, because if I'm not happy today because of decisions I've made um, that can build a happy tomorrow wow yeah it's okay for today to suck because suck yeah. the, if I embrace the suck today maybe not tomorrow like 24 hours from now but tomorrow the future that will build a that will build a happiness in the future. That's why Jesus says not to uh, be anxious about the things for today, um, but to build your treasure in heaven, right? Um, seek first the kingdom of heaven, mm -hmm. His righteousness. Um, is because if you're anxious about the things for today, you're what you're what you're doing is you're believing that I need to find my happiness in today. I need to serve my happiness for today. Yeah. And if I'm anxious today about money, status, whatever, um, my anxiety for today and serving that happiness for today won't, won't serve my future happiness. We have, uh, you know, Jordan yeah, Peterson, yeah. Peterson talks about loving ourselves. We have to love more than ourselves today. We have to love ourselves not only today, but five years from today, 10 years from today, <laughs> oh, 20 wise. years from today. And if you're loving you, the you that's 20 years from today, you're going to do very different things than what you're going to do if you're serving yourself for your happiness today. 
And Jesus gives us the ultimate vision is to serve our happiness um, in the kingdom of heaven, you know, right. a, a, yeah. after after death. And if we're serving that, that's going to make very different implications on the choices that we make today. And today might suck because I'm serving that end, but that's going to lead me to a whole different level of joy than if I serve the happiness that I can find today. And yeah. so for me, I struggle because I really think the happiness today matters um, in the moment. And I can sit down and postulate good theology and convince myself that the happiness after I'm dead is really more important. But in the moment, I really do believe that my the happiness right now matters. And if I could talk yeah, to yeah. any kid and convince them that their happiness is an 18-year-old kid and the kinds of things that make an 18-year-old kid happy... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, will make a 35-year-old miserable. Oh, will make them miserable at 18, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure. You know, it yeah. only it, the the things that make you happy at 18 will induce misery into your life in the immediate future despite the fact that they provide in, immediate and very short-term pleasures. And um yeah, I don't I I I think that that's probably yeah, yeah. that's what I would say. I would sinning say. sinning and expecting pleasures kind of like buying a plane ticket to Denver, Colorado, and being surprised when the plane lands at Denver, Colorado. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean that, that's, the, that's the promise of pornography, yeah. right? That's, yes. That's what it is. It's immediate, easy, accessible pleasure that will produce a disproportionate amount of pain that will last into the future. Yeah. And um, if you can hold off on that and build out for a, a, a superior and better joy in the future, well, then that—I mean—that's a—that's a much better life to live. Yeah, it's okay to be unhappy today. It really is okay, yeah. and you will be okay if you aren't happy today. You, be, it won't yeah. hurt you. Being a good dude is kind of like black coffee. I love coffee, man. Like, I'm, I'm a coffee nerd right now. I love Des Moines coffee. I love the coffee that Carlos roasts. You know, I can finally tell the difference between good coffee and bad coffee. I haven't always been that way, though. When, when I was a senior in college, my, my best friend Alec Epkis came back from a church planning residency, and all of a sudden he loved coffee. And I was like, how did you do that, man? How did you go from hating coffee to loving coffee, brewing a, a pot of coffee in here? Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll never forget his advice because it was true. He said... Drink black coffee, and on day one, it'll be bitter and you'll hate it. Yeah. On day two, it'll be bitter and you'll hate it. On day three, it'll be bitter and you'll hate it. On day four, it'll be, it'll be bitter. And on day five, it won't be so bad. And all mm -hmm. of a sudden, years later, here I am, and I absolutely love black coffee. <laughs> and being a good dude's kind of like that. If mm -hmm. you practice a virtuous life and pursue following Jesus and carrying your cross, then today might feel a little bitter. But if you accept that carrying your cross today might lead to bitterness, then perhaps next week you'll find that it actually caffeinates you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. If you have, uh, being able, um, it's very scary to look a demon in the eye and confront it. But when you do that and you realize you survive on the other side... It's far more enjoyable, far more happy mm. than living in fear and hiding from that demon. 
Thanks for listening to Iowa Needs Good Dudes. I'm on a quest to find the best dudes in Iowa and tell their stories. So feel free to reach out to me and send me a message on Instagram if there's anybody who you think would just make a great podcast and whose story begs to be told. We do have a one-night conference coming up on Friday, September 15th at Frontier Church in Des Moines. It's going to start at 6.30, but it's going to go late into the night. We're going to have four dudes from four different churches preaching. We're going to worship together. There's going to be a food truck there. And afterwards, there's going to be a bonfire for anybody who's interested. We're going to shamelessly preach about Jesus. But listen, even if church isn't your thing, even if religion isn't your thing, come check it out. And maybe, who knows, you'll end up mixing it up with some good dudes. And maybe your life will get changed. Friday, September 15th at 6.30 at Frontier Church. Come hang out.